Well, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we come with grateful thanks that your word is truth you have spoken and you have spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ to teach us and direct us and correct us. So please, as we have heard his word today, may we hear again as we think on it more, all that he has to say to us and reveal him to us, we pray in his name. Amen. Whenever sports commentators start talking about some particular sportsman or woman as the goat, you may be forgiven for thinking that this must be a new way of mocking someone and taking the mickey out of them. But in case you don't know, I'll tell you now that to call someone that name is a compliment because the acronym GOAT stands for greatest of all time. Now keep that in mind as we enter again into the world of Matthew 18, soon after the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus answered that question in verses 1 to 6 of this chapter, which we looked at last week. And there he stressed that childlike humility is the measure of greatness and that this is not only the way that you come into his kingdom, it's the way that those who come into his kingdom live in his kingdom. The humility they learn by swallowing their pride and admitting their sins is the humility they need to keep on in the Christian life. Now you remember from last week that Jesus told these things to his disciples who were squabbling amongst one another as to who of them was the greatest. And from that we infer that either they hadn't learned humility or that they cared more about themselves than others. So remember his object lesson for them? A child. He set a child in their midst. He drew their attention to that child and drew from that object lesson the very heart of the nature of the humility he was speaking of. And one of the implications of what he told them was that part of humility means caring about those who are considered the least and the lowest, the unimportant, the marginalised, the powerless. Now this morning in verses 7 to 14, we recognise that these verses continue on from what Jesus said in the previous verses. And the same will be for verses 15 to 20 next week. Although it may seem that Jesus is adding several new ideas to this foundational point, actually all that he says here is rooted in verses 1 to 6. You won't find anything about greatness in the text, nor will you next week. But clearly that is the topic at hand. And so the topic before us this morning isn't new. And these demands for greatness or the path to greatness or these expectations that Jesus presents to us about greatness, about greatness all flow from the text for us to note. First in applying childlike humility, to the way the disciples ought to treat others, in verse 7, we see how Jesus urged them to avoid being the source of temptation. Hold these two things in mind and see how they connect. On the one hand, Jesus wants you to know that there is never going to be a day in this life on earth when you're going to be exempt from or kept from facing temptation. 
But alongside of that, and I want you to hear the urgency in his words here and the importance of them, he also wants you to know that though we must live in this temptation-filled world, he does not want you or his disciples to be contributors to the problem. On the one hand, there's the certainty of that temptation you will face, but on the other, the culpability for causing temptation. He says that temptation is certain, but also if you become a tempter, a contributor, then you will be held responsible for it. And if you become responsible for it, then hear his words, Woe to you! Woe to you! Woe to all who live that way! Woe to the whole world even! Woe to those who promote sin! And why does he speak to the disciples and to us about these woes? Because disciples of his ought not act as if they were part of the world, part of the problem, the world that lives in opposition to God. Notice the comparison between those he is speaking to, his disciples, and that which he is speaking of, the world. can only be one or the other. You are either one to whom he pronounces these woes or you are one who has been freed from the consequences of these woes. Now the New Testament has quite a lot to say on the subject of being a stumbling block to others. It warns us that we have freedom in Christ and we can go anywhere and we can do anything but we are clearly warned against using those freedoms in such a way that you entice others into sin. Think for a moment about that. On the one hand, those people who might have been or still are or have been a stumbling block for you. Perhaps you have to work alongside them or live with them. And in doing so, your experience is that their example causes you to stumble. They may even mock you for failing to be like them and yet call you a hypocrite when you are. But on the other hand, is it possible that there are areas of your life where you've become a stumbling block to others? It's far easier but would be a false move on our part to hear Jesus say these things but only point the finger at others without checking whether you or I might be the problem to someone else. And if that's the case, then we need to hear the urgency in the voice of the Lord Jesus as he speaks of woe to those who cause others to be tempted towards sin. And we should let this challenge sink into our own minds and hearts and consciences, urging us to repentance and confession and forgiveness before we become part of the terrible woes that he pronounces. And secondly, in verses 8 to 9, we see how Jesus, in urging childlike humility among his disciples, told them to avoid committing sin at whatever cost. Hear him say, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet or two eyes, as he went on to say, and be cast into the eternal fire. Now in these verses, note how the situation has intensified. It's gone up a notch or two, hasn't it? We should not only take great care not to entice others into sin, but even more than that, we should take care ourselves not to be enticed into and entangled with sin 
at a personal level. And why is that? Because of the terrible and grave consequences that come to those who fall. Note it well, this urgent warning against yielding to temptation, not being tempted, which is not itself sin, but yielding to temptation, which is. And Jesus is saying you must take drastic action against anything which is or could be a channel for temptation and sin in your life, no matter how precious that channel might appear to be. Now Jesus is not speaking literally. This is hyperbole. This is deliberately exaggerated speech. This is speaking to make a point and to have that point underlined and highlighted again and again. He's not encouraging self-mutilation. We might think that losing hands and feet are a terrible thing, but Jesus speaks like this to remind us that falling into sin would be far worse. In fact, if your hands and feet or your eyes lead you into sin, then it's better that they go rather than your whole body suffer the consequences of hell. And he speaks about eyes, but we could extend it to ears and listening to things we ought not, just as eyes might look at things they ought not and mouths in speaking things they ought not. It could be anything, even a good thing. It becomes a stumbling block something that might push God out of the picture, into the margins and turn your heart away from him. Is it hard to recognise these temptations? Absolutely. Is all temptation a challenge to following Christ in our daily lives? Absolutely. Every temptation is a temptation for the believer to attempt to keep one foot in Christ and put the other one in the world. And Jesus says to that, if you are keeping that one foot in the world, it'd be better to cut it off and gain glory than it would be for you to lose life eternally. That's how serious temptation is. So serious that we ought not accept any compromise when it comes to dealing with it. And then thirdly, we come to verses 10 to 14 and we'll spend more time here. And Jesus is still here stressing the need for childlike humility, not only in the way we we treat sin and temptation, but certainly in the way we treat others. As we note that Jesus urged his disciples to avoid rejecting those whom the Father loves. Having urged us to be careful about temptation for ourselves, Now Jesus goes on with a statement we'll need to think about and a parable we've most certainly noted before. Statements in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones for their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father. Now the question we ask here, we must ask, is who are these little ones? Is he referring back to the child that he had in their midst? Is he talking about the poor of the world? Are these little ones in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? Who are they? Some Bible teachers teach and understand that Jesus is speaking of little children. He's actually talking about children. 
But not all agree that. Most agree that Jesus is talking about lowly believers in the kingdom of God, whatever their ages. And I think that the context demands that we understand Jesus to be speaking of those who are just that, the lowest rank in the kingdom of God. All of us, of course, come into the kingdom of God at the lowest rung on the ladder. We all come in on our knees, as we heard last week, but there are some who come into the kingdom who still appear to be of the insignificant variety. They're lowly people, they're vulnerable people, dare I say they're wounded people, they're forgotten. And the disciples are not to despise them nor trod them down. And why does... He say that because he says even their angels appear before the Heavenly Father. Now this takes some thought as to what Jesus means here. Scholars and commentators offer several interpretations for what Jesus means in this verse. And over the years people have pointed to this verse as evidence that every believer, maybe even every child, has his or her own guardian angel. It's a nice thought to some, it's comforting. There's a certain amount of appeal in this. You want it to be the correct interpretation, don't you? But the verse doesn't suggest that. For one thing, these angels are said to be in heaven, seeing the face of God, they are not on earth, seeing the face of the child or the believer. That doesn't mean that Specific angels or groups of angels can't be assigned to protect or care for specific believers as it happens in the scriptures, but rather you can't prove it from this verse. Jesus' point seems to be that these angels are connected in some way to these little ones while still being in the presence of God's glory looking at the Father. Other Bible scholars offer another possible reading of this verse. They interpret the word Angels to mean the spirits of those believers instead of actual angels. In that case, Jesus is saying that these lowly believers we see on earth, well, their spirits are in heaven looking at the face of God or will be at some point. In other words, God has loved them and saved them and placed such eternal value on them that he's reserved a place for them in heaven and it's like they're already there looking at him. So who are we to disrespect and treat them with disdain now that their spirits are looking at his face? It's unclear. But whichever way the verses can be understood, the implications are clear. Treat these believers, that's the command, these lowly believers with utmost care and gentleness because that's how the Father treats them. They're precious to him. And to add weight to his argument, Jesus then proceeds to tell the parable of the lost sheep in verse 11 to 14. Now this parable also appears in Luke's Gospel, but in a different context. In Luke 15, the emphasis falls on the loving actions of the shepherd who goes and finds the lost sheep and brings it home. The first illustration in one long parable with three parts, the lost sheep, the lost coins and the lost sons, all told to remind us of the saving purpose of God the Father. 
But here in this context, in Matthew's Gospel, it's a different context and hopefully you can see a slightly different slant in the parable and why Matthew now puts it here. See, the idea that the farmer goes out or the shepherd goes out to find that one lost sheep and leaves behind the many, 99 of them, is both illogical and irrational. Except, of course, when you read it through the eyes of the one who is lost. Especially if that lost sheep is one of the lowly members of the flock, one of the little ones that Jesus has been speaking of, and it's you. You're the lost sheep. And so while we could jump to the lost sheep parable in Luke and think we've got it covered, we could assume the same undergirding lessons and apply it the same way, we need to allow the context of the parable here in Matthew to speak to us. Jesus doesn't tell this parable to highlight the saving character of God the Father, which is right, of course, but he tells the parable to illustrate something else. He told it so that the disciples, who'd been arguing about greatness, remember, would deduce from the parable something important and apply it to themselves. And so the emphasis is upon the care given to the least. The farmer The shepherd had 99 sheep safe in the pen and one was missing and he cared enough to go and find it. He cared enough to go and find it. And Jesus is not pointing out by this parable that the father loves some of his children more than others because one of them received special attention but to show that the Father loves all of his children right down to the lowliest of them, even to the one that was silly enough to get themselves separated from the flock, even to that one who might have been the lowliest and the least in the flock. He has a specific and special concern for each one of them, but his heart is not satisfied if the least of them are not safe. And so Jesus tells the parable to show us not so much the saving actions of the Father, God the Father is in Luke's Gospel, but the caring heart of the Father. And in showing us, he reminds these disciples of his then and his disciples of his now that they need to have an attitude like this, one like his father whose gentle and solid compassion is bent towards those who are lost, the wandering, the weak and despised in the eyes of the world because they're also at the bottom of the scale in the kingdom of God. Have that attitude towards them that your heavenly father has, says Jesus. So he paints this word picture of what God's heart is like so that his disciples who've been arguing among themselves as to which of them is the greatest might see how this all fits together. Part one was seen in his answer in setting a child before them as an object lesson and now part two is this. He is the greatest one of all. He's my father. He cares so much for his sheep. Even the littlest and the least of them. And if you want to be great in his kingdom, what's the way to do it? Be like him. Have a heart for those who are weak and despised and lost. See how it connects with humility? Putting self and what I want to do 
what's good for me behind thinking of others and asking what do they need and how can I serve them. Moving from a preoccupation with ourselves and my concerns to a real loving concern for others. Seeing these little ones as Jesus saw them. Calvin says, by his own example, Christ now exhorts us to honour our weak and lowly brethren. For he descended from heaven to be their redeemer. And it's unworthy to reject in our pride those for whom the Son of God did so much. For they are not to be assessed according to their own virtues, but according to his grace. Well, as we close, there is one last matter to note. It's in verse 14. Jesus concludes this whole section with this. It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We all need to keep in mind that God's redemptive love is a central truth about his character. God's redemptive love is a central truth about his character and that applies to two groups of people, believers and unbelievers. For believers, it reminds you that it was because of the love of the Father who sent his Son to save you and find you when you were that lost sheep that you are now in his flock. And being safe in his flock means, as Paul says in Romans 8, that nothing can or will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Christ has done for you cannot be undone. You're safe in him. But also for unbelievers, the fact that God does not want one of these little ones to perish is good news also to take hold of. God does not desire your judgment. In fact, his mercy is so deep and so wide and he has promised that all may come to him no matter the size of their sin and for all who come to him, whether they are important in the eyes of the world or unimportant, not one will be turned away. And you have no need to run to anyone else or to anywhere else, but flee to him and you will find the salvation he offers, the sins forgiven, fellowship with him forever. Because if anyone deserves the title of goat, it's most certainly our speaker. We read from John 10 this morning that he called himself the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. See, it didn't come without cost for him. In fact, that cost was more than his hands and his feet, although certainly included his hands and his feet. He gave up his life voluntarily, willingly. He laid it down for his sheep to bring them into the fold. And that's why when he speaks about this path or this demands for greatness, we must not only hear his words and do them, but we must also see those words in actions and see how he completed what he said we ought to do. May God enable us to do that and humbly accept his gift 
and humbly serve him. Let's pray. Humbly, Lord, we come to you. For those of us who know and love you with thankful hearts, understanding the length that you went, the depth that you went in order to save us and keep us and redeem us and bring us back. Humbly, we thank you and pray that people who are outside of your kingdom would know that these things are an invitation to them, that they can come to Jesus, the greatest of all time, and they will be included if they come to him. And we pray too that you would keep us from sin, from temptation, and grant us a humble heart As you have served us, so help us to serve one another. And in love, because of the love that you have for us, so humbly serve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.